0: It is really um, fun to be back with you guys again. I know the difficulties and struggles of being a church plant um, looking for a pastor. Uh, When I was in seminary, I was an intern at a church uh, in Orlando where we were a church plant meeting uh, in a middle school cafeteria, Uh, and our pastor uh, moved on to other things, and uh, there was that that time frame in between, which can be difficult um, but, chal- but challenging in, in a good way uh, and can really be a great opportunity for the congregation to come around uh, together uh, to really know what you're coming around. That You're not coming around the pastor. You're coming around Christ as Christ is manifest in so many different ways uh, in the local body. I want to ask you a question this morning. A question that doesn't often get uh, get, get asked in Presbyterian circles. It's a question that I would imagine can make several people uncomfortable. Um, But the question is simply this. What do you want from following Jesus? Anybody feel real comfortable right now? This is not simply, why are you following Jesus? This is, what do you want out of it? Have you asked yourself that question before? What do I want out of following Jesus? The reason I ask you this question is because this is the very first question that Jesus asks his very first disciple here in John chapter one. Now, in the ESV, which is an excellent translation uh, of the Bible, uh, in the ESV, uh, which I believe is what we read from this morning, if you notice there, the the first question that Jesus asks, it sounds very spiritual, right? What are you seeking? That sounds very spiritual. That sounds like, you know, something that a a spiritual leader would ask a follower. What are you seeking, right? You can almost uh, hear Jesus saying it with like an infomercial voice. But when you look at the question in the Greek, it's a very simple question. Jesus turns and says, what do you want? How profound a question, right? It's not rhetorical. That is a tremendously profound question from the God-man who has come to be the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. The first question that we have from him here as he is interacting with this first disciple is, what do you want? It's a beautiful question. It's a question that gets us beyond simply the theology of the text. It gets us uh, beyond simply what is the context of the passage, historically what's going on, culturally what's going on, in redemptive historical terms what's going on. And it gets us to the heart of Jesus Himself and the heart that Jesus has for His mission and for His people. What do you want from following me? One of the most difficult things for us as good conservative Presbyterians who are very well aware of the abuses that, have, that take place in American churches very frequently with what is often referred to as the health-wealth and prosperity gospel. We are are so aware of the abuses that have come in those settings, it becomes very easy to want to respond to those things by distancing ourselves from this concept of wanting something from God. Historically, not just in terms of our age, but historically, Presbyterians have been known as the followers of Jesus who are into big D duty and not mess but you know what I mean we're gonna follow Jesus because it's the right thing to do we're gonna follow Jesus because he's worthy we're gonna follow Jesus because he's God and what other you know proper response is there and guess what all of that is absolutely true But Jesus wants us to think beyond that. Jesus wants us to want something beyond that. And this first question from Jesus Christ to His first disciple, what we are seeing here is that an essential element of discipleship is wanting something from Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it very simply, right? To please God, right? Chapter 11, the chapter on faith, right? The hall of faith. This is a chapter that's given to us to help us understand what does faith look like? How does faith express itself? What is faith? And the writer says, not only are you to believe that God is real, You're to want something from Him. You're to believe that He's real. You are to believe that He, what? Rewards. Who's comfortable with that word? This is a good reform setting. We don't like the word reward, right? We like to think in terms of we're unworthy. We like to think in terms of, he shouldn't have chosen me. We like to think in terms of, you know, he is so grand and I am so small. And we like to think in terms of, you know, I got to take my sins seriously. And we like to think, and guess what? All of that is true. You are not worthy. I am not worthy. But guess what? He has set his love on us. And the response to his love is not to sit around and kick the ground and be like, you know, God, you really shouldn't love me. I'm going to really prove to you that you shouldn't have chosen me. I'm going to really demonstrate that I'm very aware of my unworthiness. And we spend so much time trying to prove God wrong that we don't soak in the incredible reality of as unworthy people, God has set his heart on us. Now, I see a lot of children in here. That means, or should mean, there are several parents in here as well, right? Parents, you understand what it is to give a gift to your child, not on the basis of them having earned it from you, but simply on the basis that they are your child. And what response are you looking for in your children? You give them that new bike, right? Are you looking for them to prove to you that you shouldn't have got it for them by putting it in the, in the garage, right? And every so often they go out to the garage and they look at it and they go, man, that is an incredible bike. I'm not worthy of this bike. Mom, Dad, you shouldn't have got it for me. Not worthy of this. And then have the child walk off. What do you want the child to do? You want them to get on it and ride it and get crazy. Not too crazy. You don't want too many trips to the hospital, right? Or the emergency room. My poor mother. But you want, you love it when they get on that bike and they get that crazed look of excitement because they're going fast, Right? God is doing something for his people. Not simply because it's the right thing to do in terms of him keeping his promise. He's doing it because he wants us to want him and his blessings. Genesis 15, another passage that we could have read from in setting this up is a chapter where it's one of those, one of those benchmark places in the, in, the, in the Bible that tell us what it means for God to be our covenant God and what it means for us to be his covenant people. And in Genesis 15, what the Lord says is that uh, he's, he's, he's talking to Abram and he says, because of my covenant, I'm going to be your God. And your reward will be very great. That's what it says in some English translations. Other other English translations get what I think is the better translation. Where God says, I'm your God. I am your exceeding great reward. God is our God is not like the gods of the other religions, especially the other gods of the ancient Near East, especially not the gods of the Roman Empire. Those gods existed for one purpose, and that was to have little minions, little slaves do everything for them because they were lazy and they were gluttonous and they had no self-control, and they lived only for themselves. To follow one of those gods was to be that God's slave. God is doing what He is doing for us because it's an expression of the desires of His heart. And He wants us as His covenant people to respond to the desires of His heart with the desires of our hearts. Jesus says to his first disciple, what do you want? Now within the redemptive historical context, there's this incredible thing happening here. God had promised to come and to dwell with his people, to tabernacle with his people, And John 1 says that Jesus is God coming and tabernacling with His people. God had promised to come and to give the exuberant overabundance of His grace in order to forgive His people's sin. In order to call them to Himself and to make them His children. And to make them His children as reflections of who He is. Where the righteousness of God is reflected in the righteousness of His people. But knowing that His people don't have their own righteousness, so He would provide that righteousness. He would provide forgiveness. He would provide everything that was necessary for Him, not only to set His heart on His people, but for His people to be able to set their hearts on Him. And in John 1, that's that's what's going on here. And we have this curious figure in that antiquitous hippie, John the Baptist, who is, has a very special um, ministry in the unfolding work of God, and that is he is to declare that God has come. Isaiah 40 lays out for us the beginning of this promise. That there would be one who would co- who would go out into the wilderness to meet God's people where they were in the wilderness in order to announce to the people of God in the wilderness that God is about to come and meet you in the wilderness in order to take you out of the wilderness and to bring you home and to plant you in a place uh, that is His possession, an eternal city that, whose foundations are, are laid by God Himself. And so there is this promise in Isaiah that because of the cleansing that would have to happen and the judgment of his people for their sin and having broken the covenant, that God would establish a new covenant. As John the Baptist is out there preaching in the wilderness... He is announcing that the promise of Isaiah 40 is now here because Jesus Christ is here. He is God in the flesh who has come to dwell with His people, and He's come to His people in the wilderness. And so there's this incredible fulfillment starting to happen in redemptive history. And as it is starting to unfold, as as John the Baptist is saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, imagery from the first exodus, has come in order to initiate the second exodus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here He is. And what's the response is the response, well, can you prove that to me from Scripture? John, can you help me understand theologically what's going on here? No, as he points and, and tells people to behold the Lamb of God, two disciples who hear him say this, they turn and they start following Jesus. And Jesus says to them, what do you want? Now, what's beautiful here is that in the dialogue that takes place here, Jesus doesn't respond by giving a theological dissertation on his coming. He doesn't give this incredible, which I wish he would have. I mean, it would have been beautiful, right? But he doesn't lay out this, this logical... Um, argument. He doesn't lay out um, this apologetical defense. He doesn't start laying out things of Scripture. What does he say? Come and see. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What do you want from me? Will come and watch. Come be around me. Come interact with me. Dare I say in a Presbyterian setting, come and experience me. And there's this beautiful picture unfolding that with all of the theology that is happening here, with all the redemptive history that is coming into clearer focus here, with all of that that's going on, Jesus' appeal to his disciples, his first two disciples is, what do you want? Come and see. Beloved, Jesus wants us to want something from him, and he wants that To be a reason for us to follow him and to experience him, to interact with him, to observe him, to listen to him, to speak with him. We have an incredible picture here of what real Christian discipleship is all about. It's about believing that God exists. And that he rewards. It's about looking to Jesus Christ. Not simply out of some kind of dutiful response of, well, you know, he's God and therefore I have to do what he says. But to be able to say, he is God. And he's called me to come and see." And to set my desires on Him. That my desires would fuel my following Him. Discipleship is not simply about learning things about God in order to feel unworthy about being called by God so that your life is lived in some kind of of head-dropped-down obedience to God. Discipleship is about having our eyes opened to Christ and seeing what He is doing in light of God's heart so that our, our hearts can be changed and can be renewed Refocused and set on Him. In my counseling, which I do a lot of here in Charleston, with almost everyone who comes into me, it seems like there's the same issue over and over and over. Is that the person is wrestling with the gap that exists? between their profession of faith and their experience of personal holiness. And the reason they're wrestling so often is because the gap scares them because to them the gap represents a problem rather than a time frame. All of us have this gap in our following of Jesus. All of us have this gap between what we know and what we do. All of us have this experience where we can come into church, right, and have this great worship service, sing these incredible songs, hear God uh, call us to worship, hear God pronounce forgiveness to us, hear God speak to us through the sermon to fellowship with God around His table. And then what? 10 minutes into the drive home, (laughs) you're already upset about something or something has happened, right? We all have this experience. If the way that you're approaching your discipleship is, well, I know better than to do that or I know better than to respond that way or I know better or I know this or I know that or I know this or I know that. Why... Am I not doing it? If that's the way you're approaching yourself, you're going to constantly live in a state of self-condemnation. And there is nothing that will rob you of your joy faster than self-condemnation. There is nothing that will rob you of you setting the desires of your heart on Jesus Christ and experiencing Him than self-condemnation. Jesus here is calling us to set our hopes on him, to set our hearts on him, to set our desires on him, because that is essential to faith. Last point. Why is this so important beyond just your own personal discipleship? Well, notice what happens later in the John text. That disciple that heard from Jesus, what do you want? Come and see. Well, now he's talking to somebody. We found the Messiah. Right? And what's the what's the guy say? Can anything good come out of Park Circle? Oh, I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Does he launch into an apologetic defense? Not saying that's I'm not saying it's inappropriate, I'm just asking, does he do that? Does he launch into a theological explanation? Not saying that's inappropriate, but does he go there? Does he chastise the person? Well, how dare you talk about the Lamb of God that way? Right? How dare you not value the same thing religiously that I value right now in the same way, right? There are all kinds of responses he could have given. And I think you and I can think of a whole host of potential responses that your typical American evangelical would give to something like this. But what does he say? Come and see. Come experience Jesus for yourself. Within the pressures that we are feeling here in America as conservative evangelicals, as reformed followers of Jesus Christ, with the pressure that's coming from the increasing secularization that is happening day in and day out that we are experiencing over and over and over and over, at some point, guys, we're going to have to find a different response than shock, right? Oh. Look what the New York legislature voted on. Oh, look what the House of Representatives denied. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. Can you imagine that in a secular nation that people are acting acting secularly? At some point, beloved, we're going to have to get over the shock response and figure out how to look at someone who is saying to us, How can anything good come out of your simple little silly faith and be able to say, come and see? To not be threatened, to not feel like something's being stolen from us, and to be able to smile without getting defensive and say, come check it out come to church with me. Come to small group with me. Come to dinner, and I'll have some folks from the church come and hang out, and just hang out with us. Come and see. Come and experience Jesus as Jesus manifests himself in the people of God, not only for them, but for all who would come and see. when you're able to see the essential nature of faith as connecting with desire, not just what you desire, but desire itself, what you will find is not only a more natural connection for you in the way you are relating to God, in the way you're pursuing Jesus Christ, you will find a more natural connection with your unbelieving neighbor friend, family member, co-worker, schoolmate, whomever it is. Because God has put a desire into everyone's heart. They are created in His image. They can't help but desire. What sin does is corrupt the desire so that they become idolaters. But what sin doesn't do is take desire away. Their desire gets corrupted Their desires get set on the wrong things for the wrong reasons and they get trapped in the consequences of of their sin. And rather than wagging a finger at them, condemning them because they're acting like the sinners that they are, maybe what we can do is connect with them on that personal level of, I understand what what it's like to want. Jesus understands what it's like to want. And so Jesus invites you to come check him out and to see if the desires that you are wrestling with, that you keep going down one wrong road after another, maybe he's the right path where you will find a God who is present and a God who wants to be wanted. What do you want from following Jesus? What does Two Rivers as a congregation want from following Jesus? Jesus. Think about it. Pray about it. Allow your hearts to be unleashed. Use your imagination. Let it be fueled by the God-man Jesus Himself who has come in the miraculous presence of God, saying to you and to me and to everyone, What do you want? Come and see. And then as you do all that, remember what Paul says. That God is far more abundantly able to do anything than we can even imagine that we could even desire. Once you start connecting your desires to your faith, Then start worrying about the issue of your desires being too small. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have revealed yourself in such amazing ways. But the fact that you have revealed yourself so that we would not just simply bow a knee to you. Yes, everyone will bow a knee to you, Lord, but that's a description most often used to describe those who are bowing a knee not because they trust you and not because they believe in you and not because they love you, but because they don't do those things and they are forced to do it anyway. You have called us to be your children and you have drawn us into your family and you have given us the full rights and privileges of what it means to be a family member of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so help us, Lord, not to overreact to the abuses of desire and the ways that we can daily see that fleshing itself out in churches across this land. Help us not to overreact to that by thinking that the problem is desire. But rather help us to see that Our desires need to be set on the right things. But that requires us, Lord, to approach faith from the perspective of desire itself. So free us up in our consciences and in our faith to want you and to want things from you and to want, and, and, and that from the wanting Lord that we would be a church who can bear witness to the living Christ who wants to be more than just acknowledged as existing but look to for his eternal rewards. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.